go ahead and open up episode 628 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear with the song Berlin. It is from the band Wave Electric and it's from their album self-titled debut LP. That is literally the name of the album. You can check them out over at waveelectric.bandcamp.com when you're done listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio, or should I say Kaiju Kid Radio. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, welcoming you to the show this week. We are week three into Kai July 2023. I've had a blast spending this time focused on kaiju films. I think this is going to be a yearly thing, I hope. And yeah, just keep this kaiju love going every year here on Monster Kid Radio during the month of July. That's not to say that we're only going to talk about kaiju films in July or that we're going to save July for the kaiju doesn't matter. Kai July is in full swing right now, and this week we are revisiting a film that has been covered here on the show in the past. It's Frankenstein Conquers the World. It's one that we've talked about in the past, but I love it. It's such a great film. It's one of my favorite non-Godzilla, non-Gamera, non-Reptilian Beast Toho films, kaiju films, and I get to talk about it with a friend of the show, Monster Kid Radio, Irregular Brian Clark. That's coming up this week on the show. Also, the return of Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. A lot of you have been reaching out to me asking me, what's up with Kenny? What happened to the Kenny segment? Well, Kenny's been busy. He's got a real life and real job and real responsibilities and, well, you know, he just had to deal with some stuff and he's back with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland this week plus Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review. Now, we had a glitch last week. I'm blaming Red King for this. Last week's Beta Capsule Review was actually an older edition of the Beta Capsule Review. So, we're going to play what was supposed to be last week's Beta Capsule Review this week. And then what was going to be this week's is going to be played next week, which basically means Mark is getting a week of production off. And believe you me, he needs it because he was just at G-Fest. And from what I understand, he had a grand time. I would love to hear about how G-Fest went for anybody who went, everybody who went, feel free to give me a call at 360-524-2484 or drop me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com and let me know how G-Fest went. I'd love to hear all about it. But first, I'd love to hear about the Beta Capsule Review, the famous Monsters of Filmland, and Frankenstein Conquers the World. So that's coming up right now. across the motion picture screen comes the most terrifying monster of them all, Gamera the Invincible. Gamera, the super monster that even the H-bomb cannot destroy. Gamera the Invincible. Gamera, consuming raw atomic power, power to destroy entire cities. Open fire! Man's most destructive weapons have no effect on Gamera the Invincible. The mightiest nuclear weapons ever devised are powerless against Gamera, the Invincible. Is humanity doomed? Will the world be destroyed? The United Nations is called to emergency session in a last desperate effort to save the world. We have one plan that we think might work. We have discussed Plan Z with the Japanese authorities, and they agree it is the best of our alternative plans. Is that correct, sir? That is so. Plan Z is hope of the world. 
a cast of thousands at the mercy of the most terrifying monster that ever lived. Brian Donlevy as General Arnold. is beyond comprehension. He must be stopped now. Albert Decker as the Secretary of Defense. Will Plan Z stop Gamera? Gamera, the Invincible. It's 1966. The space race is on. The Cold War is heating up. And giant monsters are destroying Japan. Daikaiju Attack from award winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Now available in all ebook formats on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive Through Fiction, and other quality outlets. And in print on Amazon.com. Find more info at DaikaijuAttack.com, SDSullivan.com, and the Daikaiju Attack group on Facebook. Join the action today. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Return of Ultraman, Episode 21, The Monster Channel. Original air date, August 27th, 1971. 4 a.m. In Setagaya, an office worker's youngest daughter, five-year-old Mikako, awoke to turn off the television. Just then, a picture of a civilian plane flying over the East China Sea appeared. Monster attack team member Minami was evidently up and watching because he telephones Go to turn on his TV, just in time to observe the destruction of the Japanese passenger plane. No more than an hour later, MAT meets to discuss the facts, which indicate a high-powered signal of unknown origin and the tragedy of the downed flight, which was witnessed on televisions around the globe. MAT Arrow 1, piloted by Wayno and Go, takes to the skies over the East China Sea, and they immediately encounter Kaiju Beacon, breaking through the clouds. Narrowly avoiding its laser beam, the duo return with photographic proof of the monster's existence. MAT determines that Beacon absorbs electric signals for energy and can transmit its own signals. The point is proven when Beacon generates another broadcast showing two planes colliding in midair, followed by a dogfight with the MAT Arrow 1, in which the monster emerges victorious. Go hatches an ambitious plan to shut off all electronics in Tokyo and lure Beacon out over the ocean with a high-frequency signal, but the monster is instead drawn to a boy operating his ham radio. As Beacon scours the neighborhood, Go rushes to the scene, locating the boy moments before his house collapses. Is it too late for him to transform into Ultraman? The Monster Channel is an inventive episode, packed with fresh ideas and a renewed visual flair, culminating in a gorgeous sunset battle segment. The concept of Beacon being able to broadcast its violent actions and consume electric signals practically begs to be interpreted at some deeper level. While other media commentary is made by a humorous scenario involving a housewife trying to watch her soap opera. 
This might have been a minor classic in the Return of Ultraman canon were it not for the underwhelming design of Beacon, whose static expressionless face conveys little menace and whose upright form is more droopy than demonic. It's the only weak link in an otherwise strong outing and the last episode before big changes begin at MAT. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. and Monster Zero. Do you see anything? From a planet 50 million miles beyond the stars came a strange message. Lend us your Rodan and Godzilla to fight our Monster Zero. Earth answers, and the most dreaded creatures ever to walk our planet are lifted into outer space. The stage is set for the mightiest battle ever seen by the universe in Monster Zero. All forces on Earth ready to attack. What started out as a call for help from space turns into a nightmare of terror on Earth, Monster Zero. And the War of the Gargantua. It began with a mysterious, wild storm at sea. And before the night was over, the whole world would hear of the terror of the Gargantuans. Where had such a monster come from? What forces created such a devastating destroyer? Who or what could stand up to it? Let him have it! Armies fought the monster with million-volt laser beams. Another one! You'll see all of their terrifying battle to the death when you come to the greatest monster movies ever made. The War of the Gantuas and Monster Zero. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today's film, Frankenstein Conquers the World, was featured on the cover of Famous Monsters number 39 from June of 1966. Inside, we find a 15-page article with a whopping 21 photos. Here are some highlights and an interesting behind-the-scenes look at the writing of a preview article in Famous Monsters. Frankenstein vs. Baragon Baragon, the rhinoceros-horned reptilian remnant from the age of dinosaurs, a gigantic monster. Frankenstein versus the giant devilfish. Nuff said. These two titles were used to describe the new Japanese-American color collaboration, the monster movie three years in preparation and shooting. At last, the film will emerge on the screen. Its final name? Frankenstein Conquers the World. How, all horridom has wondered, could the Frankenstein monster fight a dinosaur? 
or a giant devilfish. Even a baby Brano could squash Frankenstein with one of its huge paws, and a king-sized devilfish could make deviled man out of Frank with one bone-crushing squeeze. Ah, but not if Frankenstein were over 60 feet tall. And in this new thriller, he is. A brief synopsis follows, and it isn't very accurate. Fauria explains why next. P.S. Now, before every film monster fan from America to Antarctica, from Azerbaijan to Zanzibar, writes in to tell Yi Ed that he must have dreamed up the foregoing review in bed, because there is no mention of Frankenstein's fight with the devilfish, or that he should consult his eye doctor about getting a new prescription for his bifocal glasses, because the description of Frankenstein being European doesn't fit the photos which look like he's Oriental. Let me once again patiently try to explain something to you, ungentle readers. It would be ideal if six months before the release of every monsterific picture, I could personally see a preview of it and take along a mini-tape recorder to take down the dialogue for future reference. Alas, this is an idle dream. It rarely happens that way. Instead, I'm lucky if I get a hold of a press book with its often skimpy synopsis or some sort of mimeographed information sheet. When the picture is a foreign one, like Italian or Japanese, I often suspect that the translator learned English from an IBM machine. Feed an IBM machine a sentence like children shrink from washing and ask to have it translated back and what do you suppose you're liable to get? Think about it. When washed, children grow smaller. Possibly, if it's a real hip machine, it knows that shrink also means shy away from and just might come up with the translation, children shy away from being washed. Of course, even that sentence might get garbled into children, timid, gone, from creature, washed. Well, a being is a creature, isn't it? So when it's a foreign film, I'm lucky if the storyline is halfway intelligible. Here are some actual quotes from the handout on Frankenstein Conquers the World, from which I have attempted to make some sense for you. Dr. Bowen is conducting research in resuscitation of destroyed Tushu. The giant is terrifying Clitisons. The hand dies of swallowing the albumin solution. Huh? About to destroy some of Baragun's party, Baragun finds itself confronted by the Frankenstein giant. Baragun's party? They must have meant Bowen's party. Then, to doubly confuse matters, after carefully establishing that the F-monster is European and not Oriental, I get a second synopsis from the studio, with even less info than the first, with one very important difference. In describing the origin of the new Frankenstein, it states that an orphaned waif in the heart of the Hiroshima Holocaust finds the heart of the Frankenstein monster and, driven by the hunger pangs of starvation, eats it. Thus, the baby being Japanese, the giant that he grew into would be a Japanstein monster. Just be grateful you only have to read these reviews and not write them. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Beyond the stars come the most fearsome monsters in the galaxy. Only Godzilla stands in their way in Godzilla on Monster Island. 
is even Godzilla strong enough to defeat the invaders? Matching unbelievable strength. Exchanging incredible death daily rays. Don't miss Godzilla on Monster Island. Rated G. Atragon, the ninth wonder of the world. Atragon, an earth mover. A flying fortress. A submarine. Atragon, technology's newest, fights all the powers of black magic. The mysterious submerged continent of Mu attacks our world. I am agent number 23 of the Mu Empire. This earthquake is not accidental. Terror panics civilization. As cataclysmic forces clash, Atragon in color. This is Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, we've talked about this movie before on the show, but it's been over 400 episodes or so since we talked about it. I wanted to talk about it again. This week's guest wanted to talk about it again. So we're going to talk about it again. We're talking about a movie starring one of my favorite guys, Nick Adams, and I'm talking about it with one of my favorite guys, Brian Clark. How you doing, man? Oh, thank you very much. I'm doing good, and it's great to be back here on Monster Kid Radio. It has been a while since you've been on the show, uh, quite some time. What's going on with you? Uh, I just put out a collection of short stories called Putting the Ground to Sleep. That's probably the biggest news from Camp Clark. You can find that on Amazon. It's free to read if you have Kindle Unlimited. There's there's an ebook version. There's a print version. Uh, I even got it into a couple of uh, local stores, which is kind of neat. Oh, so cool. I also recently recorded um, some voiceover work for uh, an upcoming band. A couple of friends of mine have a new uh, death metal band called Adversion that will uh, be releasing an EP soon, and they, they wanted some sort of spooky narration voice type stuff on it. So now I'm going to be on another record. That's so cool, man. You wanted to take some time out to talk to me about a kaiju film. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. I'm always down to talk kaiju. Oh yeah. And I think those listeners would be happy too. I think those listeners would be happy too. This is a good one. This is one of my favorite kaiju films. One of my favorite non Godzilla kaiju films. It's so unique. And I, I just, I dig the way they weave the Frankenstein mythos into everything uh, without kind of hitting us over the head with it. You know, there's that little bit at the very beginning and then, Oh, okay. Of course it's Frankenstein. No problem move on plus we got nick adams and nick adams is my guy like if i can't get john agar get me nick adams you know absolutely yeah i i love nick adams he's so good in the, in the toho movies that he made too it was kind of a, a 
let down to have him be replaced in the sequel to this with Russ Tamblin, who kind of visibly didn't want to be there when Nick is so enthusiastic and really gave it his all. Visibly didn't want to be there and verbally. I mean, you could, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the American dub where he came back in to redo his lines again, you could tell he's just like, he's over it. It's like, let me just get through this so I can go to lunch. All right. Whereas Nick Adams seems to be just happy to be here and just having a good time. And I, like I said, Nick Adams is my guy. I, I know sometimes I talk about John Agar being the guy. But if I could have had a John Agar, Nick Adams, like buddy picture of some sort, man, I'd be in heaven. <laughs> a road picture. Uh... I, I've talked about it. I think I've probably mentioned it on the show in the past. I'd love to have some sort of like that. My, my fan fantasy, whether it's like writing some fan fiction or something, it's John Agar and Nick Adams driving across the country, Route 66 style, fighting monsters. And every once in a while, they have to pull up at the mechanic shop that happens to be run by Whip Bissell to make sure the car is <laughs> You know, that's, that's, that's my, my, my fan project. Of course it would be with this all running the garage. That would be fantastic. <laughs> so with this movie, Frankenstein conquers the world, what is your background with it? What do you remember the first time you saw it? Uh, yeah, I didn't get to see this one until the media blasters, Tokyo shock uh, oh. DVD came out. It was kind of hard to see for a long time. Cause I, I didn't like have cable or anything growing up. So I, Never got to catch it on TV. Um, it was kind of past the time, you know, when I was a kid where this was going to be shown on TV a lot. And, you know, it had never come out on digital home video. I'm sure there was a VHS that cost a million dollars somewhere. But, uh, yeah, it was for one reason or another. I just didn't get my hands on this one until I think it was maybe earlier, mid-2000s when that DVD came out. I actually, one of the weirdos who likes this more than War of the Gargantuas, that tends to be the one that everyone says is like their favorite uh, non-Godzilla kaiju movie, but I actually like this one a, a lot more. You know, I'm going to join you on that one. I, I know that War of the Gargantuas gets a lot of love, and, and rightly so. You know, the, the Gargantuas themselves are pretty darn cool. They look great, especially once you get a really good transfer and you can actually see them. Uh, they look fantastic, and the movie overall is fantastic. I, I won't downplay that one, but this one, Frankenstein Conquers the World, is actually my preferred of the two as well. Partly because of the Frankenstein connection. I love my Frankenstein. But I feel like, again, it goes back to Nick Adams. He really kind of carries the enthusiasm of the film for me. It's not just a Nick Adams show, but I really gravitate toward this one other than the other one, too. So you're yeah, not alone, man. Well, that's good. That's good. And yeah, like you said, no no slander at all on War of the Gargantuas. That's still a great movie. But uh, it's something about the... It is Nick Adams is a big part of it, yeah. and uh, And just the tone of this one is a little darker it's a little more like a horror movie in fact this was touted by toho as the first of a, a series of horror sci-fi crossover pictures when they they made a, a production deal with uh, upa the american studio and henry saperstein and this was the first fruit of that co-production deal and the treatment was originally even written by uh, jerry stoll not takeshi kimura and this had gone through several different iterations. Originally, it was going to be a sequel to The Human Vapor, where they had Frankenstein as a normal human-sized monster fighting the human vapor. And then it was going to be Frankenstein versus Godzilla, and then they decided they didn't want to use Godzilla and invented Baragon, who is a great kaiju. Yes. Uh, he's, he's very cute. <laughs> he's kind of a puppy. But... Uh, <laughs> but he's, he's very popular and came back in a bunch of different movies and boy that suit was popular Subaraya got a lot of mileage out of that 
you know, chopping it up and turning it into different monsters for Ultraman to fight. Yeah, you know, we just did, and I know, Brian, you haven't heard it yet because we're recording this before that episode came out, but we just did the Ultraman Kaiju Roundtable with Mark Madsky and Anthony Wendell. And yeah, we, we talk a little bit about how some of the suits were recycled and Zubariah was very efficient, <laughs> I suppose is, <laughs> is one way to put it. Uh, very um, aware of waste. And uh, if, if things were already built, then why rebuild them? Let's just put a frill on something or, or put an extra spine on it here or change the color there and boom, new monster. I do like Baragon oh. as well. Uh, you mentioned he's very puppy-like. He is very puppy-like. Uh, but it's still fun to watch him get beat up by Frankenstein. Uh, sure, sure. <laughs> which I'm looking forward to listening to that roundup uh, or that roundtable episode. And I, I hope my boys Pestar and Dinosaur Tank got some love. Oh, well, my favorite, favorite ultra kaiju. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, okay. Um, good for you. Uh, <laughs> I know listeners now are like, oh no, but yeah, I, I, I don't want to ruin it for you. So, uh, yeah, good. I'm glad you like them. Anyway, no, no, I'm nervous. I'm going to get kicked off the show. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, in fact, uh, I hope to get a lot of feedback on that because I want to hear what some of the other kaiju from the Ultraman franchise should have been talked about during the round table because there's a lot to pick from. There's a lot to pick from, but I'm rehashing what was already discussed in last week's episode. I want to focus on Frankenstein sure. Conquers the World. You mentioned yes, a name that... No, 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 that's not a problem at all. I'm, I'm glad you bring it up because it, it gives me a chance to kind of go back and you mentioned a name that came up when Robert Kelly was on the show a couple weeks back as well. And I've never really talked too much or dove too much into this guy, Henry Saperstein, Saperstein, Saperstein. This guy, I feel like is pretty important in terms of getting some of these movies over here. Do you know much about the guy? Not a ton. He imported Mothra versus Godzilla and, uh, I think just sold it to either struck a deal with or just straight up sold the distro rights to AIP for that one. But he, he really liked it. Um, he thought it was a really good movie and wanted to make more of them. And uh, he, at least at first, got along well uh, with Ishiro Honda. And that's you know how they wound up striking this deal that Honda would make these movies for him. But he would also have script input, uh, creative input. And yeah, it got a lot of great stuff made. He may have stepped on Honda's toes a little too much <laughs> sometimes, I think. But in the end, we got some great stuff that we probably never would have had without him. Right. And it's unfortunate that so many of the 60s Toho movies, sci-fi movies that we love, were born out of John Beck stealing King Kong from Willis O'Brien. Originally, it was going to be King Kong versus Frankenstein, and then the two split off and a bunch of Godzilla movies and King Kong movies were made with the Kong side and then the Frankenstein went, went this route. But uh, Saperstein didn't have anything to do with that. I think he that was a separate thing. He wasn't involved in that. Right. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, with, with John Beck, you know, he was the one that approached them about or sold them the script for King Kong versus Frankenstein. And, you know, the rights regarding King Kong, no, he's not in the public domain. No, he's not you know, based on folklore or anything like that. It, King Kong is a trademarked copywritten character, trademarked character from a copywritten uh, source. So you, you really couldn't have done that without getting permission to do so. Uh, I'm mm. not sure what the thought process was there, 
back in the 60s. I know there was some question about King Kong's rights at one point, but I believe RKO and then whoever absorbed that library did some things kind of behind the scenes and technically retain the copyright. But again, I it's not in the public domain. It's not something you should have been able to do anything with. But it did ultimately lead to this, which, again, I find fascinating. Like, how do you make Frankenstein a kaiju-sized monster? Yeah, well, this movie does it, and I love it. I love the very beginning of the movie. I love that whole bit with, you know, having the scientist <laughs> taking a piece of Frankenstein's brain, and just, I, I love that. Yeah, that's interesting that we're never really told whether that is supposed to be a descendant of the original Baron Frankenstein, or if that's just a scientist working for the Third Reich. He's certainly in a mad lab in a castle, which suggests that he is a descendant of Frankenstein. Because at one point, they do say, you know, that the original story of Frankenstein is part of the continuity of this. They say that this right. monster has been alive for hundreds of years, and that its heart is immortal. I'm sorry, um, yeah, I said yeah, brain, didn't I? I meant heart. I'm sorry. But yeah, that, that opening scene... And th th what I said before about this having more of a horror tone, that opening scene is a big part of that. Aside from the model shot of the battlefield and mm -hmm. those wonderfully familiar Toho sound effects, oh, so it good. feels feels more like an Italian Gothic horror in that opening scene than it does a Japanese science fiction movie. Ooh. I could see that and, or, or hear that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I like that. And, so, and some of that also might be because there isn't a really good clean print of this. Like the, the prints on the DVD that I have look like they were taped off a of television. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's still kind of washed out. Lots of artifact and lots of film grain. It would be great if eventually Criterion would put this one out too because I know they bought up a lot of the other non-Godzilla Showa era films too when they got the, the Godzilla library but they've just had them on their streaming service so I don't know yeah. if there is a cleaner print of this streaming now but yeah I'm not I'm not sure I know that the movie has been released let's see Tokyo Shock put out a release of it here on disc uh, there is a release in Japan and I believe there is a German release as well which would make sense uh, right Germany seemed to latch on to Frankenstein as their catch-all monster word for a lot of their movies and, and would say Frankenstein this, Frankenstein that, even if it had nothing to do with Frankenstein's monster. But I don't know which one is the best transfer, the Japanese or the American. I would release. imagine the Japanese one's a little more cleaned up think... as possible. Toho may have put it out on Blu-ray there, and it just hasn't come True. there yet. You'd think, but then the Japanese DVD release of War of the Gargantua is, is muddier than the American release. So I I don't know. Either way, I, I would love to see a really nice print of this or transfer of this at some point. Because it's such a good film. And you're right, it does have that, that, that darker tone. And I don't know if it's because Russ Tamlin sounds so disinterested in his dub <laughs> of War of the Gargantuas. What, but there's just something about War of the Gargantuas that just doesn't feel as heavy as this yeah. one. And I like my monster movies to be scary. You know, I want I want that heaviness. I want that yeah, sense of... Right, and there's no uh, words get stuck in my throat. 
in this. There's no little interludes of weirdness to, you know, of levity to break up that tone. So it feels the same all the way through. You don't have, uh, and that was, uh, there's another Saperstein thing, um, you know, shoving his girlfriend. You got to have my girlfriend in the movie. She's going to sing a song. (laughs) Luckily that didn't happen here. No, I can't imagine this one being interrupted with something like that. This one is, it's got that kind of pseudo Gothic vibe and you couldn't interrupt it with that. And of course they pay a lot of homage to the Jack Pierce Frankenstein makeup and the design of the monster. And he gets more monstrous as he grows when they first find him. He's a little kid. He looks kind of strange, but mostly normal. And then as he grows, he gets more of the flat top and the, and the, the Japanese cast and crew are all big fans of, of the uh, James Whale Frankenstein and, and Carlos performance in particular. In fact, Nick Adams had just made Die Monster Die, which was also written by Jerry Stoll, the guy who did the original treatment for this. He had just come from working on that to working on this, and so they were all very enamored. Oh, you got to work with Karloff. They wanted stories about Karloff because <laughs> they all were big fans. That's awesome, and... Rightly so. I mean, Karloff was master, and the Frankenstein's monster is iconic. It is one of the classic monsters that you think that anybody thinks of when you think about classic monster movies, right? You think about Frankenstein's monster; it just looks amazing. What I like about this Frankenstein, though, and this one in Frankenstein Conquers the World, yeah, it pays homage, but they weren't so slavishly devoted to it. You know what I mean? Yeah, they, it still right. feels they like didn't. a Toho creation. Yeah, absolutely. He's more feral, caveman-like. Um, you know, doesn't have bolts in his neck. That kind because of, he's regrown from the heart, so he's purely organic. There are no stitches or anything like that. But exactly. Now they couldn't have gotten away with the bolts in the neck. That that was a trademark thing for Universal. As is the flat top head, technically, but this one while there's hair covering it, so maybe it's not exactly a flat top head. You're right. It does have that more organic feel, which I dig. You know much about the guy who played the monster? Uh, yeah, the, the Frankenstein monster is played by uh, Koji Furuhata, and he had never acted before. Uh, it was the first time came in audition for it, and they put green contact lenses in to help him look German, I guess, because <laughs> amusingly <laughs> enough, they insist throughout the whole movie that oh, he's, he's Caucasian, he looks German. He's like, no, he doesn't. He looks like a Japanese guy. He, he really does. <laughs> not even close. And the other, like the green contact lenses they put in to do that, they didn't seem to have made his irises green just to, you know, change his eye color, but it looks like they made his entire eye, like their scleral contact lenses, so they make the whites of his eyes look green too. So it just makes him look more monstrous, but not necessarily German. Caucasian? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it works. I mean, the the look works. Oh, yeah, it's very cool. And then, of course, Baragon is Haro Nakajima. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Kind of one of the go-to guys, right? Yeah, yeah. And the suit being crawling on its hands and knees probably has something to do with it. It's different proportions than Godzilla and that. But it's not something where you watch it and go, oh, he's just being Godzilla again. And that that's also a testament to what a great performer Nakajima was, that this monster has a completely different personality than Godzilla. He knew how to alter his movements and his performance to show that this is something else. Right. Well, and that's one of the things that I love about these suit actors from this era. Well, just Toho in general. 
it's not just a guy in a suit. And, and you know, sometimes I, I say, you know, I like a guy in a suit. And I'm not trying to, you know, downplay it or whatever. I, I do like a guy in a suit, but I like a skilled guy in a suit. Mm-hmm. Did that make sense? And I feel like, especially with this era of Toho, they were really just the suit actors are amazing. They really are. Sure, yes, some of the work absolutely. is done by the suit, but the suit acting and just the monster performances, I feel like they really cared. And it's one of the reasons why I think Toho movies resonate so well with so many people. And now with me, like I said on a recent episode of MKR, I, I did not grow up with these because I kind of actively avoided them. Um, I didn't get it. Now, <laughs> now I do. And I love them. So saying that, when did you first see this movie then? It was part of my journey, part of my quest to watch all the Godzilla movies just like <laughs> as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Once I decided that I, I did like them and they were for me. Uh, as much as anybody else. So I would say within the past 10 years. I'm sure this one, you, you already had the classic horror love. So there was okay. something a little more for you to, to connect to in this one than, than some of the yeah. others. I immediately latched onto it. So when I first started my Godzilla journey, it was after seeing, you know, the movie at the Hollywood, the King Kong versus Godzilla, uh, and, and just absolutely loving it. And that one also had something I could connect to because it, was the American cut, which meant it had a ton of uh, creature from the black lagoon music in it. And so, <laughs> right. you know, it's, it's just what they did and I loved it. So I went through and I, I made it a point to watch all the Toho movies in order of their release, at least for the Godzilla movies. Some of the other ones that I knew didn't have Godzilla and I just kind of bounced around a little bit. So Rodan, I watched kind of out of technical order, I suppose of, of when they first came out. And this one is also one that I, I knew it wasn't a Godzilla movie, so I was like, I don't need to be beholden to any kind of continuity. I'm just going to go watch it. Does that make sense? So, yeah. yeah, within the past 10 years was when I saw this one. And I loved it then. You know, I love the take on Frankenstein. And I was used to different takes on Frankenstein at that point because of, like, the Hammer films and that sort of thing. Sure. Frankenstein 1970. You know, I knew Frankenstein was... You know, for everybody. So <laughs> anybody could do right. a Frankenstein movie. Uh, so I was okay with the different take on Frankenstein in this. And and again, I loved it, you know, with the, the giant beating heart of Frankenstein, or, well, what becomes the giant Frankenstein, but the beating heart of Frankenstein. And the way they kind of played off of World War II and Hiroshima and all of that really kind of almost being too on the nose regarding, you know, Godzilla's origins and that sort of thing in terms of like working right. the bomb in and everything, but still it worked so well. This is the only time, despite there being so much use of the themes of atomic war in these movies. this is the only time they, at uh, Honda and Tsuburaya ever actually tried to recreate the bombing itself. Yeah. So this is definitely the, the most on the nose, uh, as you're saying of that. And, the, the final script was done by Takeshi Kimura, who was one of Toho's two main sci-fi screenwriters at the time, along with Mishinichi Sekizawa. And Sekizawa's scripts were a lot more upbeat, hopeful, playful, um, a lot more the theme of the what Honda called the Brotherhood of Man. You know, we can work together and win. Uh, whereas Kimura's scripts were bleaker, and a lot more political, kind of to match his personality. Because Sekizawa, they were both pacifists, they were both anti-war, but Sekizawa was uh, a very optimistic kind of guy. And Kimura, uh, he was a member of the Japanese Communist Party. He was 
kind of a misanthrope. <laughs> um, <laughs> not that that has anything to do with being part of the Communist Party, but he was a lot more actively political, so he worked a lot more of that into his scripts. And they even show, like, when the, when the bomb goes off, that building with the dome on top, they kind of make it seem like that's where they're doing the experiments on Frankenstein's heart. But that is uh, actually a place called the uh, Atomic Bomb Dome, and it's the only building in the blast site in Hiroshima that was left standing because the bomb went off almost directly over it. So the blast was straight down rather than pushing it out. And it had these big columns that helped it stay up. And so they've now, it was originally built in 1915 as a, a place for art and educational exhibits. Um, it's gone through many different uses over the years. And now it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And they, they keep it up in that ruined state that you see it later in the movie after the bomb goes off as kind of a reminder uh, of the horrors of atomic war. Even so, they never treat either the German characters as bad guys or the American character. Uh, you know, obviously, one of our leads is is an American, and that was part of Saperstein's thing. We have to have Hollywood stars, albeit affordable ones that are on their way down. No big Hollywood stars, no money for that. That goes back again, though, to what you were saying a second ago regarding it feeling like an Italian Gothic, because that's what they would do, too, over in Italy. They would bring in oh, yeah. somebody from Hollywood so they can get that American audience, but not somebody super expensive. So, yeah, it, <laughs> it kind of lends itself to that. Absolutely. I didn't mean to derail what you were saying, but. Oh, no, no, that's okay. I, was, I mean, Bowen has ties to the bomb. At one point, he says that he worked on it and felt so horrified by what it did to Japan that he moved to Japan to help find treatments for radiation sickness. Um, and, you know, how many movies do you see that have Nazis in them where the Nazis aren't the bad guys? They're just wallpaper. And they show Japanese soldiers picking up the heart from the Nazis and bringing them back. And then one of those soldiers um, is a secondary character who's fairly important in the movie. He runs the oil field that Baragon destroys uh, when we first find out that there's another monster besides Frankenstein. I like that there's some complexity to that, that these yeah. are all just people doing their best. Yeah. And whatever, whatever ends they're working toward is kind of... Uh, unimportant. I shouldn't say that they're unimportant because obviously Bowen is trying to help people dying from the bombs. Uh, but right, do, am I making any sense here? No, you're, you're <laughs> I feel like my sense. point and is just kind of fell apart. In my no, no, you're you're absolutely right. And to be clear, Nazis are fist magnets. I mean, Nazis are not. You know, <laughs> are are not. Oh no, yeah. But but no, you're absolutely right. It it would have been really easy to make them just the cartoon villains. Right. Yeah, I didn't and mean that the movie is soft pedaling. No, not know, at it, all. It just not doesn't make any doesn't make any noise of it either way. They're just exactly. there, and that's it. And it's it's interesting. It, it it it's a different take, and that's another reason why I like this movie as well. Is that they're not caricature villains. They are clearly the Nazis, but as much baggage as that can bring to a production, they just kind of are there. It's not their story. So you know, introduce them, move them on. You know, move move along. Let's get to what we're really doing here. And I do right. like Bowen's portrayal as well. Uh, there, there's this real sense of regret, even though I guess he does say he did work on the bomb and that sort of thing. But there's this sense of regret and responsibility that 
Nick Adams puts into his performance as the doctor. And I really responded well to that. I really like that. So yes, you're making yeah, Mr. Kawaii. That's the, um, the Japanese soldier was on the submarine crew. Who's later the, the oil field guy. And there's the commentary track with Sadamasa Arakawa, who is the uh, director of photography for the special effects unit. There's a scene right before Baragon destroys the oil field where Kawaii and his people are just having a meeting, I guess. And they're all wearing these sort of uniform suits and they're blue and the lighting the room is sort of blue. And he says it makes sense from the Japanese perspective that that scene is has a lot of blue in it. And I was curious because he and he doesn't elaborate. So I was looking up what blue represents, what significance it has uh, in Japanese culture. And it represents purity, which doesn't really make any sense, but it also represents loyalty. So it's possible that he was referring to Kawaii being a loyal soldier and a loyal Japanese. But again, he's not, even though he was part of the Axis powers in World War II and working with, to us, the, the bad guys, he gets along fine with Bowen and they work together to figure out how to stop Frankenstein and Baragon. So it's just, like I said, there's lots of layers and it's, there's a lot of complexity to the, the way the characters interact that you would think should be enemies, but they're able to put all that aside, put, put the past behind them and, and work together toward a new goal. And considered that, but no, you're, Hmm. I haven't listened to the commentary track in forever. I think I probably listened to it when I first discovered the movie or rediscovered, you know, got on my journey to watch these movies and that was about it. So I, I don't remember much from the commentary track. Uh, sounds like I need to go back and re-listen to it. <laughs> Maybe I should have before our conversation. Um, I feel like sometimes people write these kaiju movies off as being silly kids fair and that sort of thing, but there's so much more really going on. There's a complexity. And I mentioned this with Robert too, when we talked about Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, that, for me, the best kaiju movies are the ones that have more than just giant monsters beating things up. Yes, I love that. Yes, I love a guy in a suit building, you know, beating up a, mo a model somewhere, or in this case, a guy in an exaggerated Frankenstein makeup beating up a guy in a lizard suit. That's cool. But the reason I think this movie is so strong for me is the human stuff going on as well. Of course, yep. you need a good human story. And with the MonsterVerse yeah. movies, everyone... There's so much, I'm just going to say stupidity online about, oh, we don't need human characters. Just show us nothing but monster fights. And no, you have to have a good story and good viewpoint characters to make you care about the monster action because otherwise the monsters destroying things has no consequence. There's no reason for you to be invested in anything that they're doing if you don't care about the human characters that are either being endangered by their fighting or are trying to help the, the good monster or whatever's going on. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. You need to have that connection. And I just feel a stronger connection to the characters in this one than I do a lot of the others. This is probably one of my favorite Toho movies. Yeah. And uh, both Kimura and Sekizawa are great writers. Hondo was a phenomenal director. Tsuburaya absolute master of special effects artistry. You know, the people who are making these movies weren't 
just chumps making something silly to make a buck. Maybe Henry Saperstein was, but the crew at Toho, they took this very seriously. They weren't trying to make, you know, they always tried to make their best. And um, like we were talking about too, when we uh, discussed Gamma versus Gauss a while back, that there's, there are layers to these things. Even the silliest, kiddiest ones like Gamera, most of the Gamera movies anyway, are there's something else to them. If you watch them enough times, you start to sort of peel back the layers and think about the themes and implications of the story. Yeah, for sure. And, and I've mentioned this and I've said this repeatedly to people in person on the podcast, you know, strangers on the bus. Okay. Maybe not, but, <laughs> uh, you know, these older movies there, and especially the ones from different cultures, uh, than the one that I grew up in, they're fascinating because they serve as, is not just, you know, an interesting story and a fun time, but you kind of look at them through squinted eyes and you see a documentary, you see what the culture and the society that was producing this film was like at the time, the mores, the rules, what society was like, all the different things going on behind the scenes and the way the characters interact with each other. You've got this American guy running around in Japan trying to make up for the sins of the war that he's taken on himself. And that's just, again, I want to go back. I keep going back to that because I find it fascinating. Now, he's not the only guy in the movie, obviously. There's a great cast here. Yes. And I think the connection and the chemistry that Nick Adams has with his co-stars, uh, in particular, Kumi Mizuno, is just phenomenal. Oh, absolutely. And there, that chemistry, well, the, the chemistry between him and Kumi Mizuno <laughs> maybe went, went a little too far in life. They, I put it that way on purpose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but but everyone there really did like him a lot. He was he was excited and happy to be in Japan. He got along really well with everyone. It was a difficult shoot because they were you know he was speaking English. The Japanese actors were speaking Japanese, and they basically had translators on the set to help the actors recognize their cues and where they needed to talk and what they were reacting to. Like I said before, he gave it his all. He tried really hard. Robert Dunham, the guy who is the Seatopian Emperor in Godzilla versus Megalon, originally tried out for uh, the role of Bowen, which, I mean, it would have been fine because he's, he's an okay actor, but and he can speak Japanese, um, but he's not, a, you know, nobody in America knew who he was, so he wasn't going to sell it to a Hollywood star. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, there are several great stories by uh, some of the cast and crew. Um Sadamasa Arakawa, the, the effects director, um, was surprised by how small he was, apparently. Oh, <laughs> That's no. something else he says in the commentary because, you know, he's such a larger-than-life James Dean type in, in his American movies, you know, so he was expecting this big, burly, macho guy, and then he gets off the plane, and he's like, oh, you're short like me. <laughs> um, Kumi Mizuno said that... Uh, Nick Adams really immersed himself in the Japanese culture and the film industry. He really tried to understand Japan and its people. You know, they spent a lot of time together, obviously. Um, but when Russ came to Japan for War of the Gargantuas, they, he just didn't seem to like it at all and didn't try to talk to anybody. Um, Yoshio Tsuchiya, the guy who plays Minister Kawai, uh, said 
I, I'm probably mispronouncing that name because it sounds like I'm saying Mr. Cute. Because <laughs> Kawaii is... Anyway. Um, I said, Nick knew that after shooting for the Japanese version, his voice would be dubbed into Japanese and vice versa in the United States. I told him for the American version, you must get Henry Fonda for me, and if you do, I'll get Toshiro Mifune to do yours. <laughs> and um, he said that when, uh, of course, that uh, didn't happen. I can't remember the name of the voice actor who dubbed him in this, but um, when Nick was leaving Japan, he asked Suchia for an autographed photo. And he said, well, why do you want a photo of me? And Adam said, I want to put it in a frame and have it in my room. And at the time, he thought he was just being flattering. And then uh, later on, Tomiyuki Tanaka, the Toho producer, uh, went to America and visited Nick. And when he came back, he told Suchia, he really does have your picture framed in his room. Like, he just really loved these people, made a lot of, a lot of friends, and that lasted through the rest of his, unfortunately, short life. Yeah, it's true. He, yeah, um, it's unfortunate that we lost Nick. Uh, I say Nick like he was a friend of mine. Uh, it's unfortunate we lost him when we did. Um, but no, you can definitely tell there's a sense of enthusiasm uh, and compassion and just joy going on there. And I wish I knew more about like Nick's story, Nick Adams' story. I don't know much about it, to be completely honest. I, I just don't. Um, he's always made me a fan in anything that he does. You mentioned Die Monster Die earlier. A huge fan of that one huge fan of that and again he just looks like he's having a grand time doing these things do we want to talk about the kumi muzano thing at all i mean with him and i don't know that there's a lot to talk about they allegedly had an affair that led to adams getting divorced yeah but she also said but she's also said that he you know that she turned down his advances because she was engaged at the time and so i mean probably they did but i don't know not something really really need to dwell on, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's it doesn't change the movie right. for me. Um, and it doesn't change how much we enjoy them as actors. Exactly. And their performance again is so good. It's their their chemistry together, uh working together is just fantastic. Yeah. Um so, <laughs> when uh, one of the times that um Akira Takarada came to G Fest Someone asked him in the, the Q&A panel what what it was like working with Nick Adams. And his Nick. answer was, Nick was a very horny boy. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> no! I know what that means, but what does that even mean? <laughs> well, um, good for you, Nick, I guess. Uh... <laughs> anyway, uh... Uh, what else do you want to talk about with the movie? You said you had some notes there. What else did you want to mention? Oh, yeah. I've, uh, I've been uh, deleting as we go along, so I don't well, hopefully don't repeat myself. Oh, one thing. After filming wrapped, mm-hmm. Saperstein decided, we want another monster. And because he had authority to do so, told Honda, you got to give me another monster. And he's like, well, we're the movie's done. I'm like, I don't care. Give me another monster. So they had to scramble to rebuild some of the forest set, get back as much of the crew as they could, um, get Frankenstein back, 
and make him fight a giant octopus. Which, you know, it, it looks like they didn't have a lot of time to film, but it's not one of the better effects in the movie. So when they sent the footage to Saperstein to cut into the American version, he went, mm, that doesn't look that good, and just scrapped it anyway. So you can see this footage out there, but he made them go to all this extra trouble, and then they never got to, you know, didn't end up using the footage. There is one other sequence that looks a little phony and is kind of notorious. Um, okay. The scene where Baragon eats the horse. Ah. That the horse puppet is really silly. There's a uh, company called Revoltech that used to have a license to do Toho Monsters, and I have their, the Baragon figure they did, and it comes in a little horse corral <laughs> and a little toy oh horse. No. Next to them. Um, but according to Subaraya, he did that on purpose, made it look, in his words, he said it was funny um, because he thought that it would be too upsetting. Like the movie was already kind of a horror movie, and, and having Baragon eat a cute horse he thought would just be a step too far. And so, again, according to him anyway, he intentionally made that horse look not convincing so that uh, the kids wouldn't be too upset by it, I guess. Because while Hondo just wanted to make movies and make statements, Subaraya was much more wanting to entertain children as well so he didn't like it when the movies got too dark like you know he was the one who put the shade dance in in monster zero when godzilla does the little mm -hmm. hop a skip thing <laughs> after they beat Ghidorah. and but there's a scene in the japanese cut uh that's not in the american one where some school children find a bunch of dismembered rabbits in their science classroom before Frankenstein gets big, this is when he's running around eating people's pets and stuff in the beginning of the movie. And it's, it's really graphic. It's, but I, you know, Subaraya wouldn't have had anything to do with that because that was the main part of the shoot. So it's interesting that he tried to tone down the violence um, in, the, in the parts that he was making. But then there's this horrific <laughs> scene with a bunch of mutilated bunnies. Well, I think back, I think to uh, more of the gargantuas too, where, you know, it, you know, the eater, it eats a woman and, and in the yeah. American cut spits out the remains. Right. <laughs> Dude, that's, 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 um, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, maybe Subaraya is like a lot of us animal lovers who like horror movies that, you know, off as many people as you want, but don't hurt the dog <laughs> kind of a thing. Yeah, maybe, maybe I mean, he didn't think that was so so outrageous. That's true. That's a possibility. Sure. And I kind of buy that story of him uh, intentionally dumbing down the horse scene because pretty much all the rest of the effects in the movie are fantastic. Mm -hmm. And he was really getting a lot of mileage out of that Oxbury optical printer that uh, he made Toho buy him that um, he first used in Mothra versus Godzilla. Because there's a lot of really good composite shots. That scene where, toward the end, when they're racing toward the uh, the mountainside where Frankenstein and Baragon are fighting, and Frankenstein steps out onto the road, yes, and and lays down the body of their their uh, fellow scientist that he rescued. Mm -hmm. Man, that scene looks fantastic. It really does, and it helps that Frankenstein and Baragon are much smaller monsters too. That's always something. 
in a kaiju movie when you have a smaller kaiju or like the daimajin movies are another good example of that where the smaller the monster the more detailed you can make the sets and it really helps to hide some of the phoniness i guess you're not wrong uh again um you get a little bit more detail it, it it's harder you know once things start to get to a particular size to kind of maintain believability yeah uh, and maybe that's some, i hadn't really thought about that but maybe that's one of the reasons why i like this one so much is uh it just the detail seems to be better and something i hadn't really considered yeah and the, the miniature work is is great too especially when baragon attacks the oil field i yeah. think that's that's better than a lot of stuff in Godzilla movies. And I would say almost on par with Gorath. I don't know if you've seen Gorath. Yeah. That one's not, uh, yeah, the, the effects of, that's probably super eyes best miniature work, but the yeah. oil field getting trashed in this looks pretty phenomenal too. Oh, it looks so good. So good. Well, I want to talk about the music because that's, of course I do. I love the score. It's Akira Fukube. So of course I'm going to love it. The man was a master. At first listen, sometimes a lot of his, his themes start to sound alike. And he did but, reuse a lot of them too. And and he did, and Toho I'm you know did, and and that's just part of the you know, part of the course, I guess, part of the, the deal. But I think there's some real interesting stuff happening in the score here that I really enjoy. You can hear the the beginning of a lot of themes that he used again later in this movie. So I think most of the stuff in in Frankenstein Conquers the World is original to this movie. Yeah. But you can hear snippets of things that were rearranged or re-recorded with different instruments later. He used a, a lot of uh, bass flute in this one, which apparently there was only one of those in Japan at the time of the recording of this, so it gave it kind of an unusual sound. Well, that's awesome. That makes it even better for me. I love it even more now. So there have been a couple of soundtrack releases for this over the years. You can pick it up on CD. Uh, looks like in Japan mostly, uh, but Amazon is your friend. Amazon Japan is your friend if you want to get your hands on it. Uh, it's it's really good stuff. It's really good work, and it's one that I do find myself going back and listening to. I listen to film scores all the time. Big surprise, right? Uh, <laughs> but I listen to film scores. All the time. I use them for inspiration for my writing and just for fun. It's, it's my go-to. Well, that and BC Boys and Digital Underground. But you film scores <laughs> a lot. And uh, <laughs> uh, and this is one that I find myself going back to quite a bit. Uh, I, I just I love it. And it, it's got some really unique things. That, like you said, you would hear later in, in some of the future films that Toho would do. Plus, uh, one of the soundtrack releases. I think multiple soundtrack releases, actually, now that I think about it. You get some of the sound effects too. And as a sound guy, that's just awesome. Yeah, that's something I would love. There's so much uh, knowledge about the, the special effects process and the, the production of the movies and that kind of thing. But something that I don't think there's a lot of scholarship or research on is the sound effects from these Toho movies. And I mentioned that earlier at the beginning with that, the, uh, the opening sequence, but they're so, you know, the, the sound of the monsters falling down, the explosion noises, the, the noise, the monster roars, of course, we know how Godzilla was done and how a lot of those were done, but yeah, somebody needs to dig into the archives of Toho and find out who did their Foley and how, because I would love to know the origin of all of these noises that we, 
that are as familiar as the music, I think, to those of us who watch these movies obsessively <laughs> over and over again, that you, you hear that sound of a monster's body hitting the ground or the sound of a tank cannon firing. And it's you know, kind of a warm hug, like, oh, that's that's familiar and it makes me happy. <laughs> I would love that. So Toho, if you're listening, I'm open. You know, I can get time off from work. I can hop on over to your... You know, and, and uh, just hop on a plane and, and check out your library. Just let me know. And <laughs> that's how that works, right? You just kind of stay on a podcast and then. Yeah, definitely. That, that's how that works. You think Toho's listening? I mean, I got all the way to standing outside the gates of Toho Studios and they didn't let me in. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> got to take a picture with the Godzilla statue. That's it. I, that, yeah, that's one better than me, man. That's something that Beth and I want to do so badly is go to Japan someday. Just. Someday, someday. Well, I'm really glad that we got a chance to uh, revisit this. Like I said, it's been almost 400 episodes, if not more than since I've talked about this one on the show. And I know that I there have been jokes made about eventually I'm going to run out of movies to talk about here on the show. Because, you know, it's this classic monster movie. It's just a limited pool to pull from. And yeah, I'm still always finding new things to talk about, but revisiting a favorite is always something that I look forward to doing. Having an opportunity, especially during Kai July, to revisit one of my favorites, one of my favorite Frankenstein uh, monster portrayals, one of my favorite film scores, one of my favorite non-Godzilla Toho films, period, was just a treat. So I want to thank Brian for taking the time to be part of the show this week. And we need to make sure that people check out your books and your other stuff going on. Uh, what was the name of the current release again? Putting the Ground to Sleep and Other Weird Tales. And that can be found on Amazon or get in touch with me. I've got uh, copies of if anyone wants one signed for some inexplicable reason. <laughs> I'm still hey. writing for... <laughs> well, okay. That, how do people get a hold of you then? How, what's the best um, way to do that? Just find me on Facebook, I suppose. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's it. That's really the only social media I use. So <laughs> I'm, okay, fair I'm enough. around. Um, and uh, I'm still writing for Scream Magazine. Haven't had a, a new one uh, with them for a little while, but they publish every other month. And so it's always interesting to, to watch for the drop of the new cover announcement and see, Oh, did they use one of mine this week or this month? I mentioned before the, uh, the voiceover work. I did uh, one for a band called coagulate on their 2022 rehearsal demo. And then upcoming, there's one called Adversion, uh, working on plenty of other writing projects now, hoping to have another uh, book out by this fall. Right. But, on, uh, well, I know what that book is and I'm super excited about it. That'll be very cool. And what about any other podcasting stuff that you're doing these days? Are you appearing on uh, any other shows or anything? Or I was uh, just recently on a podcast with some friends of mine uh, from, from here in the Midwest called I Like It Spooky. And we talked about uh, Jean Roland's Demoniacs. So a little, little different focus than, than MKR, but uh arty French horror movies from the seventies. <laughs> and of course, none of them liked it. <laughs> Those movies aren't for everybody. No, not really. <laughs> I love them though. I love all, all kinds of horror monsters. Give it all to me. <laughs> horror monsters. Give it all to me. That's a t-shirt. Um <laughs> <laughs> 
Cool. Well, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to your books or to your uh, Amazon page. Do you have an Amazon author? I do. Yes. Okay, excellent. I'll make sure there's a link to that because it also includes links to the anthologies in which your short stories have appeared. So I'll make sure there's a link to that as well. And of course, Amazon affiliate links. It helps us out as well. If you go and check out any of Brian's stuff, I'm a fan of his writing. So Monster Kid Radio seal of approval. Boom. Check it out. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. That out for sure. And uh, make sure you let him know Monster Kid Radio sent you. Brian, thank you for doing this, man. Yeah, thank you for having me. I always love talking about Kaiju. All right, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thanks for being here. Thanks for tagging along and retweeting tweets and sharing posts on Facebook. Please join us over on Twitter and Facebook and Reddit and Discord and Patreon. You can find links to all of this over on our website at monsterkidradio.net. You're going to find out everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio over there, including links to everything that we've talked about including Brian Clark's author page over on Amazon and our Amazon affiliate links. If you're going to do any shopping at Amazon, please consider using the Amazon affiliate links. doesn't cost you anything extra, but it does help us out. But of course, the best thing you can do to help us out is just retweeting tweets and sharing posts and letting people know about what we do here at Monster Kid Radio or Kaiju Kid Radio, as it were. Speaking of which, next week is the final week of Kaijulai 2023. And we've got a weird one coming up. We're going to be talking with a new person, somebody we've never talked about or talked with on the show. His name's Roger Castle. And we're going to talk about a South Korean kaiju film. I know, South Korean and kaiju. You know, kaiju is actually a Japanese term, but you know what I mean. We're going to be talking about the movie Space Monster Wing Mogwi. This is something that was just released on Blu-ray here in the States for the very first time. Last year, it was considered a lost film for a very long time, even though technically it wasn't. It was just locked up due to like copyright issues and the Korean film archives. But it's now available, and we're going to talk about it next week with Roger. And I've already recorded that. I had a really good time talking with Roger. We're going to have him back on the show in the future. But yeah, next week, that's going to be his first appearance here on the show to talk about space monster Wang Magui. After that, we're probably going to play some recordings from the recent Monster Bash Summer 2023 edition. Mike Ramsey has sent in some awesome recordings from that event, so we're going to do some of that in the month of August. And then who knows? We'll do some other cool stuff down the line, including in September. I want to let you know, and my wife's actually sitting in the room right now, and I haven't shared this with her, but I just found out that Monster Kid Radio has been approved to be at Rose City Comic Con this year. It's happening in September. What are we going to be doing there? a look at the past 10 years of Monster Kid Radio. It's going to be a lot of fun. I hope to have some other Monster Kid Radio irregulars joining me during this panel. It's going to be a live recording. If you're in the area, I would love to see you. Please come by and track me down. I'll be the guy wearing the Hawaiian shirt looking like he's having the most fun in the room. It's going to be a really good time. We'll talk about it more on MonsterKidRadio.net as we get more information. I don't know what day we're going to be doing our thing yet. They haven't lined that part up yet and That'll determine who can actually join me because everybody's got day jobs. And, well, just stay tuned. It's going to be really cool. Thanks for being here. That does bring us to the end of the show. So I need to sign off by letting you know that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution. Non attribution. I blew it, but I say it every week, and you know what I mean. Except that doesn't apply to the song... Berlin. That is copyright 2022. The band is Wave Electric. 
You can find them at waveelectric.bandcamp.com. The song Berlin is on their album, self-titled debut LP. Check them out and let them know the Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name's Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. Thank you.